Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good evening and welcome to Wrestling Rewind. I am your host, Angel Amoroso, and I am joined by my co-host, the Iron Man, Tommy Cairo. Hey, what's happening, Angel? And tonight we are in for another episode of Wrestling Archives. Uh, So what do we got for tonight, Tommy? Well, tonight, depending on uh, time permitting, uh, I have lined up so far some really, really um, legendary heels taken from Hall of Fame, Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, The Heels, that's Bulldog Brower on there. Um, uh-huh. I thought that was Carlos Colon, but to my surprise, it is not. Um, How I, long did you think that was Carlos Colon? As long as I, I had the book for quite a while. Very, very surprised to find out it's not. Uh, it's not even a guy you would know. It's on the inside cover. I'll pick it up later. But uh, This is something you can get from, I believe it was from ECW Press. Uh, oh. I've had this for quite a while. Um, it's really good because some of these profiles um, go like right back to like day one, which is, is fine. But for time purposes and you, you, to keep these like a little bit shorter, these are great because it kind of almost starts off, you know, um, with their wrestling background rather than go back right. to day one. So I have um, a couple greats lined up. Eddie Gilbert will be the first one. Um we both right. have a lot of history with Eddie Gilbert. He was booking of ECW um, yep, before Paul Heyman got there when uh, mm-hmm. we were all doing pretty good at that point. <laughs> so, Absolutely. He used to say it went downhill. <laughs> so anyway, Big time. Let's, uh, yep, let's start out with, uh, you know, his early involvement was long before fantasy football was the rage, Eddie Gilbert was doing fantasy bookings. As a kid in Tennessee, the son of veter- veteran pro Tommy Gilbert, was creating angles on his own. It was like a fantasy wrestling league for himself. Marvel's uh, long friend Ken Wayne, uh, who I think was, um, oh, he had a t- tag team, Ken Wayne. It, it escapes me right now. Um, that wasn't the rock and roll RPMs, was it? No. Ken no. Wayne had like star. That uh, might have been Ken Star. Sorry. Yeah, he had some kind of star. Um, makeup on his eyes. Clean it on his um, face. Thinking, yeah, I'll, I'll think about it. Um, it says here, he booked stuff and wrote it all down in notebooks. And sometimes, years later, he'd find one of those books and find an old angle that he thought of when he was 15 years old and rework it to where it would fit. Hot stuff Eddie Gilbert's career in wrestling didn't last nearly long enough. He died at just 33 in 1995. But everyone who watched him in action as a wrestler and a booker, still marvels at his ingenuity. He was not very big, but he was a thinker. 
incredibly creative, said referee James Beard, who knew him from their days in Texas. He was very basic in a lot of how he worked. He really believed in logic and making fans believe what you were doing. Given his bloodlines, Thomas Edward Gilbert Jr. probably was destined to follow his father into the business. From the time he was in the second grade, his only thing was being a wrestler. His dad and I both tried to talk him into being anything else. His mother, Peggy, said, Eddie started off by writing articles and taking ringside photographs, and by his own admission, watching every move Memphis icon Jerry Lawler made. Contrary to popular opinion, he did not miss his graduation at Lexington High School to wrestle, and though a journalism held, and through journalism held a little allure for him, it was nothing like taking bumps. So he obviously did some other things, but his major goal was to eventually get in the ring. Uh, he debuted in '79 in Malden, Missouri, and was a fan favorite at first, earning his spurs with a lot of blood. Gilbert teamed with Ricky Morton against Mr. Onita and Masafuchi in an infamous 81 concession stand brawl in Tupelo, Mississippi, which is infamous or is actually famous. Eddie and Ricky Morton really established themselves as tough country boys with that angle, said Fred and Memphis manager Scott Bowden. They went into that bout pretty boys. They left men who were fighting for America against the evil Japanese who had invaded their backyard. Oh, the hardcore of Memphis, man. Yep. Then it was beautiful. Americans against the Japs. You know, perfect. Gilbert moved to the WWF in 1982, mostly on the bottom half of the card. And his life changed the following year when he was involved in a near-fatal car accident in Allentown, Pennsylvania, after a TV taping. Upon returning to Tennessee, he really found his niche as a cocky upstart heel with a turn on tag team partner Tommy Rich that helped him earn a main event against Lawler. Since he yearned to be Top Gun in Memphis like Lawler, that was a dream come true, he said in a 1992 interview with Paul Adamovich. Moving to Bill Watts' Louisiana-based promotion, Gilbert partnered with wife Missy Hyatt. The combination of beauty and sneakiness that shot him to the top ranks of wrestling. The hot stuff name, taken from a Donna Summer song, was always on his mind. I wanted to be a heel, he said. And I thought, okay, everybody's got a nickname. Why can't I be Hot Stuff? And why can't that be my song? Gilbert constantly battled his small frame. At 5'10 and about 210 pounds, he was coming of age in an era when roided-up freaks were making the covers of wrestling magazines, and he was familiar to pills himself. But he worked more of a big man style. I think Eddie always had something to prove because of his size. Well, that pills thing just came out of nowhere, right? Yeah, it's it's not appropriate within even the sense as you're reading. But moving yeah. on, that's I mean, rude. And it's then they just left it, you know? Yeah, a little rude. Yeah. Um, how, uh, I think Eddie always had something to prove because of his size, Bowden said. However, his grasp of psychology rivaled that of Jerry Lawler's and Terry Funk's. I know Eddie's neck problem stemming from his car accident limited him a bit but often you'd never know it as he worked a very physical rolling style, especially in the early nineties. See, so, now this is where maybe they should have fit in something about pills when they mentioned that he had a horrible car accident and yeah. he had neck injuries, which was why he was taking the pills. Yeah. Maybe that would have been uh, good yeah. to fit in there. I mean, it's only a couple paragraphs away. Right. Right. Who knows? 
Um, one of Gilbert's great drawbacks was an impatience found in creative minds. He was forever hopping back and forth between World Championship Wrestling, Extreme Championship Wrestling, the Continental Wrestling Federation, and other promotions, though he always landed back in Memphis. He was so creative that he became easily frustrated with management, Beard explained. Booking the dormant Alabama Territory in 1988, Gilbert turned Dothan gates from 1,200 to 13,000, infusing mid-card talent with clever soap opera-style storylines. That's the biggest problem with WCW, is they'll start something and then cut it out three weeks later. Gilbert said in an eerie forecast of the company's eventual woes, the soap opera syndrome, you don't cut it off, you blend it right into something else. His creative creativity became believable for fans in a legendary Memphis incident. Eddie and brother Doug, bickering with Lawler, took dead aim at him with a moving car. Waller hit the windshield and fell to the ground as the Gilbert sped away. Aghast viewers called the police to report the crime. Waller appeared to TV to calm fans and turn down the heat to simmer level. You know, those people, you know. They weren't used to the introduction of hardcore like that, not with cars hitting each other. <laughs> yeah, and you know, the funny thing is. Calling the cops. Yeah, we did this, okay. And you'd be surprised how you can actually do it um, with the car moving and you taking a, a bump rolling across the car. We did it in a cemetery with one of my promotions. And even I was shocked because, you know, I guess if you're a pro wrestler, you're a stuntman, you know? Yeah, it's called a stunt. Exactly. Yeah. A bump, if, it's a stunt. Yep. Yeah. If Gilbert had a second love besides wrestling, it was politics. I never knew that. I, I did, from, actually. I did. He ran for office. Yeah, I, I oh, guess. Really? Mm-hmm. Although it's not uncommon, you know, wrestlers are popular in an area. It makes sense. It does. Republican family. His mom, uh, he, he came from an active Republican family. His mom is an alderman and vice mayor of Lex- Lexington. Unknown to most, Gilbert worked from time to time as a sergeant at arms at the Tennessee State Capitol on behalf of Representative Steve McDaniel, a family friend. Gilbert got his feet wet running for county clerk in 1994. Though family knew his youthfulness doomed him. If you're not up in years, you don't win, his mother reflected. We knew that he couldn't win that, but he loved it. He loved the entire concept of it and had a good time doing it. And this was right after he left ECW. Uh, He ran. This was in in 94. It was like immediately after he left. He went home and he wasn't uh, doing wrestling for just a small bit. And he ran. So, uh, you know, maybe not so successful for him, but at least he got he got to do it. Yeah. And then, you know, he's heading to Puerto Rico now. So we know this is coming to a close awfully soon. Right. In 1995, Gilbert was booking Puerto Rico and asked Wayne to come down for a tour in early February. Like, well, where's Wayne? Where did he come from? <laughs> anyway, uh, come down for a tour in early February. During Wayne's second night there, fans rioted in Bayamon Stadium. Back at their apartments, the old Tennessee hands reflected on the evening and agreed that they could turn that fan intensity into some cold, hard cash. But the next day, Wayne knew something was terribly wrong with when his raps on Gilbert's door went unanswered. Once he entered the room, he found Eddie dead on his bed. I closed the door and I stood there and I cussed him for dying on me, Wayne said softly. 
Ken Wayne, maybe it was. That's what we were talking about earlier. The guy with the star. Yeah, that's who you must be talking about. Right, it, right. It, it did shock me because one of the things I talked to him about that Saturday night in Bayamon, if I see you walking around rec in a recreational drug stupor for a day or two, I said, I'm out of here. When he died, I searched the room and didn't find anything. In fact, while Gilbert didn't do himself any favors with his hard living, his heart had been severely damaged in his auto accident years before, and he had long-standing problems with his blood pressure. Friends and fans always ask, what if? And in the ca this case, it's probably justified. I think if Eddie had lived, the business would have been a little different today. His influence would have helped a little bit. Maybe ECW would have done better, and maybe Iron Man Tommy Cairo and Angel Amorosa would have still been there. Oh, no. And then <laughs> say that, I'm sure. Well, Eddie Gilbert... Uh, you know, uh, of course, a huge, tragic loss to the business. I think he was really uh, a, a, an instrumental role in in a lot of our upbringings and our careers and, yeah. you know, different things he did for he helped people along and with uh, the talent in his story writing and the way yeah. he presented things. He was just a, a natural every step of the way and everything that he did and a consummate professional. And, and, you know, as, as a wrestler, no matter how small he was, and you mentioned his small, his skinny legs, when you yeah. wrestled, when we were back there in ECW, when you yeah. used to wrestle him, when he was the booker, yeah. uh, you know, no matter how small he was, he didn't let that get in his way. And, you know, you always, you didn't never thought of him as like, Oh, Eddie Gilbert, the small guy, you know, yeah. Eddie Gilbert was a, you know, he's the big guy, you yeah, know, like a little, like a power and all the, all the good ideas and the right ideas yeah. to, to get people ahead and really move things along in the business. And, you know, we all miss him terribly. Uh, I remember when I found out about it, it, it I was actually uh, in a company of Terry Taylor and a few other people with who that were just distraught about it. Like, yeah. it's like, oh, we were just talking to him yesterday yeah. and now all of a sudden, you know, he's dead. And it, it was it was horrible. But I think we uh, as 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 the wrestlers in our our area of NWA, New Jersey and Dennis Carluzzo did a fine job in the Eddie Gilbert memorials in yes. memorializing him and paying tribute to him and using uh, his father, uh, Tommy Gilbert and his brother, Doug Gilbert, and uh, uh, just a, a massive amount of people uh, on what I think it was, what, four different Eddie Gilbert yeah. memorial tribute shows. I was uh, on New Jersey. Yeah. I was, just, uh, I was actually on, uh, I, now, book one, the first one, which was a lot of my TCW guys and um, NWA guys. And then the second one, I actually was on it with the Misfits, but separate matches. Uh, Goldust and Derek Domino were the main event. Oh, I was wow. in that match. So that was yeah. uh, our tribute to Eddie Gilbert, at which were great shows and yeah. uh, probably... Uh, some of the best representation of tribute shows that there were pretty yeah. sure. I, I think IWA and Ian Rotten tried yeah, yeah. Ted Petty and shows yeah. and people didn't, were, were not very receptive to them. Unfortunately, yeah. they, they thought that it was very exploitive of Ian Rotten. Uh, I don't know how exploitive it was because he was a, a friend, you know, just as much as anyone else, but you know, yeah. that's, 
that's all left to opinion. Yep, uh, that hot shot uh, that came out of the magazine that we saw um, earlier uh, was me and Domino at one of those uh, events. I, I, you know, I looked and I there's a video of some other ones, but not of that one, unfortunately, which was which I'd like to have had that. Right, we'll have to go back to that later. Actually, yeah, we'll cover yeah. the whole Eddie Gilbert Memorial. That would be fun. Yeah. So uh, at the end here, says maybe ECW would have done better. He might have gone back there because he was tight with promoter Paul Heyman. I don't know about that. Wayne said, and while the family still deals with his loss, cards and letters remind the parents that their son made quite an impact during his life. We still Certainly. get things at Christmas time from people in Spain and Germany and all kinds of places. His mom said. That helps us. So, yes, uh, uh, Eddie Gilbert was uh, good to me. Uh, he told me, we're pushing you. It was his idea to put the Pennsylvania title on me. And he's the one who overheard a conversation uh, between Hot Body and I, where Hot Body was trying to, like, beg off and, like, take it easy or whatever. And uh, I said, yeah, whatever. We'll, we'll see what happens when we get out there. And uh, he grabbed me and pulled me aside and said, listen, you know, we're pushing you. If this guy don't want to do what's necessary, he says, either just shoot on him in the ring or tell him to sit it out and we'll get somebody else. He said, you know, don't let them step on your opportunity to come up. You know, God knows uh, people have done that for them, so they should be doing it for you. So, and that was so-so anyway, but it was of no real consequence, but it was good, you know, advice for the future that, you know, Keep control of what you're doing, and when they're pushing you, know when something doesn't seem right. You know, all of a sudden, you can't work. You're sick. Now you should have stayed home. Then, you know, sit it out. I'm sure, if we're you know? gone in a second, you know, right. kind of like that hot body, though. You know, I know personally, I had my issues with Eddie Gilbert when I was a teenager, but it it didn't affect uh what was my future with him and the relationship that i did have with him where uh he was a, a huge encouragement for me to get involved in professional wrestling he was very pro females in wrestling and uh you know he really believed that i had something and and he was probably one of the more encouraging people for me to be an active role in professional yeah. wrestling without really being someone who's just a, a, a beat up doll all the time. Yeah. So uh, he had good intent for me, even though I got my top ripped off, uh, you know, to prove his point to Dusty Rhodes. But yeah. uh, otherwise, I think he had good intent. And, you know, he was a, a great guy for the business. He just had a great mind and yeah. a great heart. And, and it, it's just a terrible loss. Yeah, for me, I think it was because I was I was built, and you know, he wanted to get bigger, and you know, he, we talked all the time about you know how to go about that. So hey, listen, I didn't care what the reason was. As long as, if the Booker man likes me and he's using me good, I'm I'm fine. I just made sure not to twist his arm too much when we were in the ring. Right, or his leg. <laughs> or his leg. All right, so um, I'm gonna, we're going to skip to uh, Mr. Wonderful. Oh, oh all wonderful. right. Now, I'm going to tell you, I remember, I remember seeing him when he used to come out with the football under his arm, uh, no, the, a football helmet under his arm. And I'm going to tell you, I never, to that point. What year was that? Well, Florida champion, I mean, uh, Georgia championship wrestling. So, okay. 
you know, uh, late 70s, early 80s, somewhere okay. there. Right. And I never heard or saw a more intense person without, like, getting loud. You know, he had that real deep voice, that big hairy chest, you know, and he was built. He had the football helmet. But unlike a lot of football players that come into pro wrestling, he just had something special between his physique, you know, the fact that he was tough. I mean, you know the Vader story. Supposedly in flip-flops, yeah. you know, he knocked him out. So early remembrance for me was, wow, that guy's over-the-top intense. And, uh, you know, he never disappointed. He was up there, top tier, you know, Hogan, you know, Macho Man, all those. He was right on top. Okay. All right. Let's go uh, right into Mr. Wonderful. A lot of people watch wrestling on TV and figure, I can do that. The difference is that Paul Orndorff was right. Orndorff, not a fan at the time, was lying on the floor watching championship wrestling from Florida in the mid-70s after his football career hit a dead end. He called his father-in-law, who knew someone who knew Florida promoter Eddie Graham. During Orndorff's his first day of training, he went through round after round of Hindu squats before climbing in the ring for five minutes each with Bob Backlund, Bob Roop, and Jack Briscoe. Of course, then who else is there? Then he's got the privilege of a Hiro Matsuda front face lock. Now, you remember, uh, Hogan got his leg broken by Hiro Matsuda. So you weren't going down there. without honors him. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, I was so tired, I was seeing stars, he remembered. But he came back each day for six months. And the brutal training left enough of an impression that he used the same techniques as a WCW trainer 20 years later. Mr. Wonderful will forever be, forever be linked with the early days of Hulkamania, as he was one of Hulk's, Hulk Hogan's foes at the first WrestleMania and a top challenger to the Hulkster's world title in the mid-'80s. In my opinion... Paul's the greatest wrestling heel that there ever was. He could get real heat, not cheap heat, but the kind of heat where people wanted to kill him, said Brian Blair, a longtime friend and opponent. As Orndorff put it, I like being a heel. It came natural to me, and that's when I started making my money. Now, funny you say that because it's, it's really weird. Uh, the personalities of guys who like being a heel um, is so much different than the guys that want to be a babyface. Because most of the guys that want to be a babyface, they feel like when they're getting booed, if they try to be, if they're a heel, when they're getting booed, they take it like personal. Like, you, you know, you can't be like that. You got to realize that that means you're. Well, doing well your if job. you're a heel, you're doing your job if you're getting booed. <laughs> well, why are you some, take it personal yeah. that you're doing a good job. <laughs> but some babyfaces, they can't take that. They can't, even though it's not real. They can't take being booed. For some reason, it, it does it affects them. You know, and it's no different than uh, high-top amateurs like Bob Ackland. His biggest issue was he struggled with knowing he could beat anybody he put, was put in front of him, but he, he, he can't do that all the time. Even though he knew it was a work, he still had a problem with it. He struggled with that. He's one of those guys that struggled with it. You know, rather than just, you know, you're making money, you're doing your job, whether you're winning or losing – but and they do accept it, but somehow in the back of their mind it bothers them. I personally know girls who have cried ringside, and I won't mention any names. They know who they are, but they cried ringside uh, because people were calling them whore, 
and it's like, and, and I said, if you can't take that, you better leave because that's, yeah. that's like, that's nothing compared to what they're going to say to you. And plus, <laughs> people will turn a person. It's not your choice all the time. People will turn the person. It's up to the promoter to capitalize on that. Exactly. I mean, when really, the fans when, decide whether or not you're a heel or a baby face yeah. by by their reaction to you when you're performing for them. I mean, look at The Rock. When he first came out, the chance where The Rock sucks. He was so bad that uh, they didn't take him. You know, they booed him as a, as a baby face. Mm. Well, then what happens? You go with it and you become the biggest heel you can become, which eventually makes you a baby face. Right. <laughs> it's crazy. Yes. All right. Uh, Rough and aggressive, aggressive, aggressor. Same thing when I played football. One thing I loved to do was block. The Brandon Bull overcame a childhood in a tough part of Hillsborough County, Florida, to become a football star in high school and at the University of Tampa, where he totaled 2,254 career yards and 21 touchdowns rushing and receiving. He scored twice in the team's 1972 Tangerine Bowl win, but the New Orleans Saints waived him in July 1973, after drafting him in the 12th round. Orndorff estimated it took him three or four years before he left, felt truly comfortable in the ring. But it took a lot less time for him to square things with noted hooker Matsuda. After a few months of training, learning the ropes, he invited his father-in-law to a training session. I got Hero back, and I mauled his ass. That's the way I was. I wanted it so bad, and I wasn't going to be denied. I've never heard that story. That's that's interesting. Yeah. Well, by that time, he was probably, you know, he was so much stronger and knew enough that I'm sure he could do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, okay. After breaking in around Florida for about five years, Orndorff was mostly in Bill Watts' Mid-South Territory with three runs as North American champion. His work was excellent. He always stayed in very good shape. He was kind of a macho-looking guy, and he legitimately is a tough guy, said Rook who was with him in Mid-South. He knocked out Van Vader and two or three other people. He actually was a, was better as a good guy. He was good either way. He was very good in both roles, but better in my mind as a baby face. Super intense and never shy away about, never shy about speaking his mind. Orndorff had a dispute with Watts about whether he lose to Junkyard Dog and split in 1982. Despite the differences, Watts thinks highly of him. Paul Orndorff was upset with me all the time, but he never did not do his absolute best in the ring, Watts said. Paul realized later, he's one of the ones that called me back later and said, I didn't realize what you were teaching me. I thank you so much. I still respect Paul completely and tremendously. He was a great athlete. So when you're a great athlete, excuse me, you're able... Translate, sure. Go on. When you're able to translate that into, you know, being able to break solos, break into the wrestling business, that's a successful transformation that a lot of people haven't been able to make. Uh, Orndorff also had a front office run in Georgia in 1982 where he got a push as a popular national title champ. I really liked him. He was a pretty fair talent and he was a good athlete. Everything about him was good. They put her Ollie Anderson. But Orndorff skipped the card in Augusta because of an injury. And Anderson, a world-class talent at making a point, 
retaliated by tossing him out of the army in Atlanta. What a jerk. Well, of course, he was pissed at me. He had a decent job. He was making some pretty good money, and he knew we were going to do everything we could to make him even more money. And I just fired him. Incredibly, Anderson encountered Orndorff and Rick Rude, then with WCW years later, when they were motoring a boat on a lake near Anderson's house. Paul said to me, again, I don't know if I got it, but I'm close, he said. You know what? I sure as hell wish you were back booking in charge of this, Anderson said. And to me, that was one of the nicest compliments that I ever received, because here was a guy who was so totally pissed at me. Orndorff flipped between hero and heel a couple of times in the WWF, entering the company as a bad guy in late 1983 after working in the Central States promotion. He teamed with Roddy Piper, wrestling with him at WrestleMania 1 against Hogan and Mr. T. Orndorff said he changed his style when he got to New York and saw a company full of slow-moving plotters. I wanted to be different than any other heel that was there, he said. I took a little bit from everyone I saw, and I could just go, go, go. I never got tired. I was aggressive. They'd never seen a heel like that. Blair, part of the excellent Killer Bees tag team, thought Orndorff was absolutely convincing as a heel. Paul couldn't really talk like Ric Flair, didn't have that gimmick, but he didn't need one. He was just that good. People believed in what he did. Case in point, during a match with Flair, a fan in Boston hurled a small bottle of alcohol in the ring at Orndorff, splitting his mouth open. He got up, and he just beat the living daylights out of me. Blair remembered with a laugh. I said, Paul, please, man, I didn't throw the bottle. <laughs> the Hogan-Orndorff feud became the top draw in wrestling in 1986. It drew more than 60,000 people to an outdoor show in Toronto. Wow. And headlined sellout houses in Nassau, New York, and Chicago on the same night. Uh, August 30th, as a waiting plane shuttled Hogan, Orndorff, and Bobby Heenan, his manager, from arena to arena. There are very few guys like Orndorff that are really athletes that can really do what I like to do in that ring, which is have a great match, Heenan said. Him and I work together. We talk to each other, and then he goes and does something and comes back to me. Very few guys that work were as good as Paul Orndorff. Hogan and Orndorff continued to battle until Orndorff switched alliances, once again canning Heenan in favor of Sir Oliver Humperdinck. But a severe arm injury essentially sent him to retirement at the end of 87. He took a bad shot, and his powerful right bicep started to shrink noticeably. A tough blow for someone who prided himself on conditioning. My whole right side, I couldn't pick a, up a glass of iced tea, he said. I started a bowling alley, had two of them, then sold them. He returned to the national scene in 1990 with WCW and worked there for most of the next five years before becoming a trainer at the power plant school. A member of the 2005 WWE Hall of, Cla Hall of Fame class, he's retired in Georgia, makes a lot of appearances at independent shows, and is openly disdainful of today's product. To this very day, if I wasn't hurt and banged up, I could do the things I could do back in the 80s and 90s. I'd be the hottest heel in the country, he said with characteristic bluntness. You got to do the psychology and make it, it believable. Now, has, is he still alive or did he pass? I'm not sure if he passed or not, but I yeah. do remember seeing him after that injury and his one arm never, ever looked the same ever again. Yeah, I think it was a nerve. It, it, yeah, it affected his whole left side. Yeah, it was pretty sad. It was like a, uh, oh, it was horrible. 
Yeah. Okay. How are we doing time wise? Uh, we're on, we're just on a half hour, so let's okay. keep going. Yep. Um, we got. Let's do. Here's a real, real um, character in Don Fargo. Uh, I have. I have his book the hard way. Uh, it has to be dug the strut. Yeah, everyone yeah. loves the Fargo strut, right? Yep. And um, this guy was really a strange guy, but um, had so many gimmicks. Um, he was another one who was sticking pins in his face and all kinds of crazy stuff done behind the scenes, you know, uh, outside of wrestling. Mm-hmm. But, um, when I can, I'm going to dig out the hard way, which is uh, one of the first books I got from uh, this um, Cobar Press. Which, if you're looking wow. for a, pl- a place to find uh, a lot of good books, uh, Crowbar Press. Um, that's uh, Scott Teal. Okay. Big, a huge amount of different uh, books you can get from that, and right up, right to the. I, I got books that are um, reprinted um, programs um, from that different organizations that. Just like you, you know, you you got them at the at the show, and they're reprinted, so they're pretty cool. All right, here we go with Don Fargo. Give you a little. Here he is. Very interesting character. Choking out someone. Yeah, that's the rope. Luis Martinez. All right. With the tag rope. All right, Don Fargo. Okay, pull up the chair. Time to tell some Don Fargo stories. Oh, and better send the kids out of the room for these. Let's start with former WWF world champion Ivan Cole. I met him in California with superstar Billy Graham. We were on the beach, and he had these body piercings by his eyes and his big black mark running down his arm. It looked like he'd been burned. I said, what happened? He said, oh, that's where I put my cigarette out. Johnny Powers, JP, the friends. We called at 2 a.m. in the morning. I get a call from the cops. This is Greensboro. You know a Donnie Fargo? Uh, yes, sir. Are you a policeman? Yes. But this sorry guy here is on a motorcycle, and he's in trouble with his girlfriend, and he needed something to give her, and he drunk all his money up, his paycheck from you. There was a bunch of good-looking flowers in the front of a lady's house, so Donnie, at 2 a.m., drives up, makes tracks with his motorcycle, Picks up the flowers and goes off to make up with his girlfriend. But somebody got his license plate. Donnie says to the officers, well, JP will tell you. JP will understand. Also, he said, JP will bail him out. Johnny Powers. Now, who else would do that except Donnie? Gun-toting partner Nick Kozak was with Fargo at the U.S. Fast Draw Championships in Houston and recounted, "When when we pulled a thumber, we pulled the gun from our waist, and coming out of the holster, we thumbed the hammer back. There were guys who fanned it when they pulled. So this is a way of shooting a six-shooter. When the gun yeah. came out, they, they, yep, they just, with the left hand, shoot the hammer back, and they fan. The guy who beat me was a kid out of Dallas, 5'8", 5'10", maybe, skinny, typical geek-looking guy. He jerked that gun out and fanned it. It was like 25 one-hundredths of a second. When Don seen this, he said, did you see how fast that guy was? I'm going to try fanning it. Don had his nice white shirt on. He put his gun in his waist belt 
and practiced it a couple times, and it was faster. It was faster than he was doing it. So he said, oh, I think I've got this thing knocked. He put a couple black powder shells in his deal, and we said, go. And he pulled and fanned and fired. Well, the first time he did it, he pulled the gun out without realizing it. The barrel was facing across his stomach. And when he pulled the trigger, the black fire powder fire burned his front of his shirt off and just peppered his belly with gunpowder. He stood there and went, fuck, I'll tell you, we hit the floor. Wasn't the only time that happened. So he was like just a maniac, shooting guns and shooting himself. Like a pretty freaky guy. Yeah. Wasn't (laughs) the only time that happened. Here's Jackie Fargo, his tag team partner, one of the great duos of all time, explaining this was in Tennessee, Nashville. He shot himself through the thigh. He was just out in the woods practicing quick draw. He had his finger on the trigger, and he pulled it, and he didn't clear the holster, and it caught him right through the thigh. It was real bullets. He went to the hospital, and he was laid up for a couple of months. Then I had to call my brother, Roughhouse Fargo, in for a couple of months to take his place. Listen, I love him to death, and he was like a brother to me, but he was a goofball, a real yeah. goober. Well, you sure? I mean, this is what makes, you know, wrestling so awesome is that they're not just regular people, you know. Some oh, are, but most not at all. None are regular people. <laughs> no, well, that's true. Maybe Tito Santana. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe uh, he's the most normal, I think, out of everyone. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you're, you're sure the kids are out of the room? Okay, you've been warned. Before he was Supermouth Dave Drayson, Dave Brzezinski was at a wrestler's social at the Sheridan Cadillac Hotel in Detroit. Here's his story. Donnie Fargo walks into this party, and it was a nice casual party. People are laughing and drinking and talking and stuff. He walks in and immediately takes over the room. What he did was grab somebody's shoe. He goes over by a wood table, drops his pants, takes out a nail, and takes his penis and puts it on this table and starts pounding this nail into it. And he stood there and pulled back, and this nail is through his penis on the table. It's like, oh, God, everybody is shocked as hell. Lord Layton comes over and says, come on, mate, and gets him the hell out of there. It was eye-opening. Come to find out later, he would do this all the time because he had his foreskin pierced. So he would freak people out, but it didn't hurt him at all. Ah, yeah, I, I yeah. yeah, must have been shocking to watch, though. Yeah. You... No, thank you. Wow. Here, here's, the, here's one that is more innocent, but no less mind-blowing. From Gulf Coast star Terry Lathan, he was a fabulous artist, one of the best artists I've ever seen. He did one of the Ten Commandments. Moses, Moses holding the Ten Commandments up in the air, this huge storm overhead. It is probably the most dramatic painting I've ever seen in my life. Picasso couldn't have done any better. The painting, when you looked at it, floored you. How could this guy, of all guys, paint the scene of Moses holding the Ten Commandments? It was unreal. Fargo did all those things and a lot more we can't print and route to becoming the greatest disguised artist wrestling ever had. Born Don Colt in Germany in 1928, he was raised in New York City and Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh where he got into bodybuilding big time. He got his real start for Al Heff's Columbus, Ohio promotion as Don Stevens, brother to Ray. 
He and Jackie tore up the tag team scene in the Northeast, got Bleach Blonde tandem. Great Bleach Blonde tandem with wrestling egos in overdrive. When Don decided to break away, he morphed into Jack Dalton of the Dirty Daltons in the South and Southwest. He had championship teams with Kenny Mack doing a biker gang takeoff, Rene Goulet during a foreign legion gimmick, and all about 18 different gimmicks. Wow. Lost in this moment is the fact that Colt Dalton, ever his name was, an incredible worker who took each one of his characters to the max. Every gimmick I did, I'm the only guy that lived it, said Fargo, who's working on a book about his multiple personalities, which I'm assuming is uh, the one I spoke about. I wore my Legionnaire's outfit on the streets. I wore my cowboy and gun shit on the streets. I did all that. Nobody else did it. They would come to the matches, be, be who they were, and when they left, they went back to a normal life. Not me. I stayed in costume 24 hours a day. Cowboy Bob Kelly is best singles opponent in the Gulf Coast Territory. Said Fargo continuously reinvented himself so perfectly and completely that fans bought, bought every bit of it. The people didn't even know the difference. When he was Don Fargo, people never, ever told me that's Jack Dalton. If they did know, they never told me about it. But his appearance was completely different, and his wrestling was completely different. When he was Donnie Fargo, he wrestled a little more. As Jack Dalton, he'd come out in the ring kicking and fighting. Kelly said, in just about every one of his covers, Fargo wrestled as a heel. I was always a prick, he laughed, at the time, mm -hmm. especially if I got into a crowd. Lathan loved wrestling with Fargo, saying his moves were always smooth and well-timed and his charisma was second to none. I would put him in wrestling not just on his ability, but his uniqueness, what Elvis was to rock and roll, Lathan said. He's just that unique. You could always count on him to draw a house. He was absolutely the most unique wrestler ever to live, and I'm glad to say he was a friend of mine. Now retired, retired and living in a trailer in the woods near Cantonment, Florida. Fargo remains a hoot and a holler. Sometimes that's the way to go. Yeah. You know what? Um, he died, passed not too long after that book came out. Um, oh. Hard way. Yep. In the trailer in the woods. Yep. Hey, it sounds good to me. Yeah, uh, no problem. Yep. Um, he's been one of the, the big hits at Cauliflower Alley Club reunions in recent years and hasn't changed a bit. Idly chatting on the phone one day about his plans for a book. He said he hoped it would include a lot of pictures. When somebody suddenly diverted his attention, that's what I want. Pictures, 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 he raved. And I've got people sending me them from all over. Wrestling fans, God damn, there's a rat. Son of a bitch. I got two big old dang dogs just laying here watching this little tiny baby rat. And he ain't doing a damn thing about it. <laughs> Let's finish with a tale Fargo tells about himself in the time Greg Valentine was working as his brother, Johnny, in Pedro Martinez's Buffalo, New York Territory. One time, Pedro's kid, Ron Martinez, was doing the interviews. So we went to this one town to do it. I can't remember the name. And Ronnie was standing out front getting ready to announce us. The Fargos come out to talk, coming out to talk. We were, we were supposed to walk out from behind the curtain. We come out naked. I mean, he went, oh, no, man, cut. Oh, cut. That's when they were still taping things. And he said, get your damn tights and singlets. We go back and put on our tights 
and everything. We had to start over again. We took a felt pen and I put fuck on my chest, F-U-C-K, and Y-O-U on his chest. And he announces us again, fuck you. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. That's one of the best stories I've heard yet. Actually, I've never heard that one. That's a good one. (laughs) Yeah. Sounds like something I would I would love to get involved yeah. in. And there are uh, other places I've seen uh, pictures of him, um, you know, in bodybuilding days. So, you know, very early um, when bodybuilding was wasn't very sophisticated, but he uh, always had a good a good physique even to the end. So I would have loved to fly on the wall to see the reaction on on the promoter's face. You know yeah. when. They come out for a second time with what fuck you written yeah. or, or naked bodies. That's that's yeah. like ultimate. Crazy. Okay. Crazy. <laughs> we can do another one. Yeah, sure. All right, we did Don Fargo. Um, how about we'll do Mister Perfect? Yes, Sounds like a good... Mister Perfect. We'll get a, a little bit more current with Mister Perfect. And I remember, I remember uh, back when they used to do uh, the vignettes of him, you know, one shot, hook shot with the basketball. Right, with the basketball. and the yeah. I like to know how many takes this it actually took. And whatever. To, you know, I like to see how many takes it actually took to get, to get all that. You know? Right, right. <laughs> okay. Mr. Perfect Kurt Henning, the son of Larry the Axe Henning. Was ever a character more suited for a person than Mr. Perfect was for Kurt Henning. The vignettes that introduced him to the WWF audience in 1988 had him sinking hole-in-ones, hitting baskets from half-court, smashing home runs, or effortlessly tossing a touchdown pass. <laughs> Henning's dad, Larry the Axe, still marvels at it. The character of Mr. Perfect is certainly something that pissed off a lot of people because there was no one really perfect. But he kept telling them he was perfect. He was. He could do a lot of things. In fact, everything he did, he did good. Consequently, that made him a good heel, said Larry. It was the best gimmick that Vince ever had there. But he could do it. He could play golf. He could swim. He could hit the baseball. He could dive. Whether Whatever it was, he could do it. Horseshoes, you name it, he could do it all. In the ring, the second-generation star could do it all as well. Kurt Henning gets A's in every subject that I would grade a guy. His working ability... The fact that he always made me look good before he beat me, said Lanny, the genius Papo. He never hurt me. He was always very safe in the ring, no matter what I did to him. You knew he wasn't going to hurt. I knew he wasn't going to hurt me because he was too coordinated. And he was very gracious. And he thought it was very nice that I would do a job for him, put him over. I always liked working with him. Then when I got the opportunity to be his manager, if I'd been a jabroni for 21 years of my life in wrestling business, I was a star for four months, and that's when I was the nemesis of Hulk Hogan and the partner of Mr. Perfect. Henning stood out in the day of muscle-bound monsters like Hogan and Ultimate Warrior, taking spectacular bumps. The six-foot-two, 235-pound Mr. Perfect eventually found his stride, taking on other skilled grapplers like Tito Santana and Brett the Hitman Hart. With Kurt Henning, I was able to do slick moves that I wouldn't think of doing with most other guys, Hart wrote on his website. He was my all-time favorite. He really was. When I think back to our incredible matches, they sort of remind me of those spy-versus-spy cartoons 
in Mad Magazine. We were similar in age, size, and background, and we had a similar look, except that Kurt wore a mane of long, blonde, curly hair. Both of us were second-generation wrestlers whose fathers were respected men in a tough business, and we shared an understanding of what it was like to have mighty big shoes to fill. Born March 28, 1959, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and growing up as a, the second son of Larry and Irene Henning, Kurt enjoyed a lot of golf, hunting, and fishing, as well as sports. He wrestled in high school, then junior college, before he even talked about going into wrestling. He had to get himself into a situation physically and mentally in order to do that, and then go out and pay the price, said his father, who helped train Kurt and hooked him up for Vern Gagne's wrestling camp, where the only other notable graduate was Brad Reingans, a great amateur wrestler Brad was. Henning oh, was so Scott Hall wasn't a successful What's graduate? That? So Scott Hall wasn't a successful graduate? Um, yeah, but I don't think at the same time. He more for Florida. Okay. I think that's what they're talking about. Um, you know, the, the groups were small back then. Right. Started a little, a little, started a little larger, but people fell off right away. Um, Henning was a baby face from his debut on January 30th, 1980. He was a good-looking young stud with talent to match. Beside Ganya's American Wrestling Association, Henning had early stints in the WWF as an opening match grappler. And in Portland, Oregon, where he latched on to Playboy Buddy Rose. He always told me that he learned more from me than anyone else, not counting his dad. I'm talking about real attention to detail and everything from day one when he came out here to Portland, said Rose. In Portland, the Hennings resigned, resigned as tag champs for a short while, which the Axe considers a career highlight. In the AWA, after a championship tag run with Scott Hall, Hennings' frustrations with being unable to unseat the world champ, not Nick Bockwinkle, were played out brilliantly in a heel turn for the title win with Larry Zabisco's help was a terrific swerve. Backstage, Hennig played negotiations with the WWF against his desire to be AWA champ. After dropping the belt to Jerry Lawler, Henning left for New York. As Mr. Perfect, he was intercontinental champion twice and battled Hogan for the WWF title. Compared to some of the silly characters of the day, Mr. Perfect was straightforward. I am a wrestler, he once said. I don't care about gimmicks. I don't care about ring entrance music. I just go out there and do what I do best, wrestle. Injuries derailed his career, though, especially his back. Yet he returned again and again in the WWF and WCW, despite doctor's orders, in a lucrative insurance Lloyd's of London, Lloyd's of London injury policy. Mr. Perfect's last big run came in WCW, where he was, was a member of the West Texas Rednecks, a character close to his true personality. Friends said, singing the parody song, I Hate Rap, to further a feud with a rapper group led by Master P, Percy Miller, led to an unexpected rise in popularity. Henning was a giving person, whether it was with fans, family, or wrestlers who needed a teacher. I love to travel. I love to meet people. Henning once told journalist Mike Moonahan, I love to be on the move. I love to be athletic. I love the fact that I get to release all my tension, and I love the fact that I get to beat up people. But as much as he is remembered for his generous nature to friends, family, co-workers, and strangers, Henning was also a notorious river, perhaps one of the best ever at the backstage hijinks that helped ease the burden of constant travel. travel. 
He was a heck of a river. He liked to pull ribs, said Rose. As long as it didn't hurt you financially or physically, a rib was fine. Larry Henning said that Kurt was always that way. Yeah, he liked to do it. Locking suitcases to posts, putting ex-lats in drinks, hiding dead fish in suit jackets, and shaving eyebrows of sleeping giants were among the simplest of Henning's ribs. Kurt could make you laugh at yourself, and before the joke was done, you would be laughing at him. Arn Anderson told WWE.com at the time of Henning's death, but Kurt was a good actor too and could feign that he had nothing to do with a rib, said Ed Wiskoski. That's um, Colonel De Beers. Mm-hmm. He'd always imitate Charlie Chan. Oh, big investigation. We find out who did this. Mr. Charlie Chan, we find out. We call Mr. Fuji. The last investigation of Henning's career was a sad one. He was found dead in a hotel room in Brandon, Florida on February 10th, 2003. The Tampa coroner's office and the Tampa medical examiner's office declared acute cocaine intoxication in the official cause of his death. Eulogies poured in for a beloved fraternity member. Randy Savage even wrote a rap song, My Perfect Friend for Kurt. And the funeral was a packed affair. The question still remains. It's not quite clear to me yet, and it perhaps never will be. From my standpoint, it just looked like he was one of those, it was one of those one-night deals got in with the wrong people, Henning's father said. There's still a mystery going on here. We left here with a couple grand, he left here with a couple grand, and he had a Rolex watch. That stuff was gone, that stuff was missing. That's still a blank. Recently, Kurt's father elected to stop his private investigation of the tragedy to spare his family any more scrutiny. Kurt being left behind, left behind a wife and four children, oldest of whom, Joe, is beginning a wrestling career. But among the sorrow, there is celebration for the Hennings. The Axe was inducted into the George Tragos Blue Fez Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame in 2006 and Kurt in 2007, thanks in part to an impassioned speech to the voters by heart. Our book is going to have a beginning, a middle, and a double ending, Larry said. There will be two Hennings in the Hall of Fame. Well, I hardly think the Hall of Fame is much, uh, you know, comfort, but... Uh, no, so sad. Story. Yeah. Four children. I had no idea. Four children. That's a lot yeah. to leave behind. Yeah, and not only that, you know, as uh, we get into the 80s, you see, you know, a pattern already. You know, I believe it was Eddie Gilbert's death that kind of started, you know, those guys in their 30s all going, like almost one after another. There were so many of them. Um, so maybe it's, you know, the trend. To, and they're uh, still going. Unfortunately, yeah. they're still going yeah. one right after the other. And, you know, there's, well, uh, unfortunately, uh, the, the one previously can't stop the one that's coming next, you know, from seeing that there, a lot yeah. of them are dying from the same thing. So maybe, you know, they should stop. Well, what always bugged me was when you go to these, uh, you know, these these uh, um, funerals and wakes, uh, you often see, this is terrible, the lineup of guys that are going to pay their respects to the family, and they're stumbling around on the same combination of drugs that killed the guy that's in the casket. Exactly. That, that's what I'm trying to say, right. And then they, they go up to the mom in that same stupefied look and pay their respects. You can't wait until afterward 
That's not actually, that's the most disrespect that you could show to show up like that after, you know, a loved one is passed from that. It's, it's just ridiculous. I've been to so many uh, like that in the past couple decades that I stopped going. Uh, I will not show up at, at, at anyone's funerals or wakes or anything like that, because it's just really at this point, just a big, it's like a show. People yeah. are there passing out their business cards, trying to get booked and, and whatnot. Yeah. I don't want to be a part of anything like that. It's a shame. Yeah, I think the worst part is the going up to the family. All right, so you pay your respects if you're shot. And they probably saw you stumbling around anyway. So don't make it worse by going up to the mom. You know, oh, I was close with your son. You know, like, my God, it's horrible. That's just horrible. Right. So are we, uh, we have time? Well, that, that brings us to a close uh, of this episode of Wrestling Archives for Wrestling Rewind. And if you'd like to catch myself and the Iron Man Tommy Cairo on Wrestling Rewind, we are on Monty and the Pharaohs YouTube every Sunday night at 7 p.m. So uh, catch us back next time. Uh, hopefully you'll tune in and learn a lot more about wrestling history next time. So until then, uh, for my co-host, the Iron Man, Tommy Cairo, I am Angel Amoroso saying have a nice night and a nice See night. Bye-bye.